Welcome to the Wheats on Your Mind podcast. My name is Aaron Harries. Wheats on Your Mind is brought to you by the Kansas Wheat Commission and Kansas Association of Wheat Growers. Our guest on this episode is Tom Tunnell, retired president of the Kansas Grain and Feed Association. Tom served as the president of the Kansas Grain and Feed Association for almost 40 years. Prior to that, he managed an independent grain elevator in Kansas. So full disclosure, Tom was my first boss. He hired me uh, fresh out of K-State many years ago, a, a green farm kid. And uh, Tom did a lot to teach me the ways of the real world, and I appreciate that, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Aaron, for um, having me on. And I just want to say you made a lot of contribution to our staff and helped our association grow at the time that you were on our staff. And you actually participated in our centennial celebration in 1996 of our 100-year history. I remember that well. That, that Yeah, that was my first year. That was an exciting time. So um, nice. by hiring me, you rescued me from a lifetime of working on a dairy. So I, I, I still owe you for that and big, big appreciation. So I, I've been looking forward to this conversation, Tom, because in your, your long, illustrious career, you've seen a lot of changes in the grain handling industry and a lot of stories to share, and uh, there are so many things we want to talk about. But why don't you just shortly tell us about your background, where you, you grew up, your, your grain elevator experience, and how you ended up at the Kansas Grain and Feed Association. Okay, well, that's, I, can, I can summarize that rather quickly. I, I'm a Kansas born and bred kid uh, from Rice County. I was born in Lyons, Kansas, uh, hometown of Geneseo. My career began actually after college in the aircraft industry. I worked for Beach Aircraft and Boeing Aircraft. And then I was down in Nashville working for Avco Aerostructures when my father-in-law decided to retire. And he was one of three brothers that owned Walker Products Company in Lincoln, Kansas. And he actually asked me to come back and help him manage the operation after because of his pending in retirement. So I did that uh, in 1975, excuse me, 71, I went back and worked into management and eventually became the general manager of Walker Products, which was a, as, as I described, a family-owned elevator uh, there in Lincoln. And we had an upright concrete operation of about 600,000 and two flat storage buildings. And we subsequently built a additional storage. But Basically, we were independent, and we were proud members of the Kansas Grain and Feed Association. From there, I springboarded on their board, the KGFA board. Then it was Kansas Grain and Feed Dealers Association. I was on their executive committee at the time that the then CEO or, or executive vice president, they called it, passed away, John Craner. We, the search committee of about eight people, uh, the search committee size, and we interviewed 20 candidates and couldn't settle on a, one we all agreed on. So I thought this was a job that might be of interest to me, and I indicated an interest, and lo and behold, I was hired. And that occurred uh, September 15, 1980. So I went from college to aircraft to the grain industry to association management, which uh, basically there's no connection whatsoever between association management and, and managing a grain ele elevator except that I, I knew the business I was uh, representing the members in. Seems to have all worked out for you and, and the Grain and Tea guys pretty well. It's long history. of It used to be called the Kansas Grain Dealers Association uh, when it was formed back in 1896, one of the oldest grain trade associations in existence. And, and your, 
you were what, number three or four on the CEO list? There haven't been that many. I, I was actually, um, let's see, number five, because okay. uh, before me, uh, the, the first one, and the unique thing about the first one, in 1896, when they uh, were organized, they actually hired E.J. Smiley from somebody's hometown, your home county, Marshall County? Marshall County, Sabetha, I believe, is where he was, yeah. Yes, that's right, and he, w he actually ran his own grain operation when they organized the, the association in 1896, and he was hired to be this head guy, head staff person, and he served in that capacity for 40 years. And back then, Aaron, they actually had to elect him every year to that position. So it was not a hired position, it was elected position. So I'm not sure I would have lasted 38 years if they'd had to elect me every year, but... <laughs> Well, EJ has an interesting history, too. EJ Smiley, of course, it's a pretty memorable name, but he has served some time or did serve some time. What's the background on that? Well, EJ, in his exuberance to represent his members, and he, he was a very strong supporter of the grain trade even back then. He, he, his number one thing was to go out on the railroad, uh, I mean, travel by railroad out and meet his members. And one time he was in Rush County and he was talking to his grain members there. There were three grain elevators and a, and a, a grain mill, and uh, they all complained about how their competitors were beating up on one another on price. And he said, you know, I can take care of that. You guys don't need to be so competitive. And so each of you give me a hundred dollar check and I'll go back to Topeka. And then once a month, you submit a report of how much grain you purchased. And I will balance between one grain buyer and the other and, and reimburse the one that's got the short end of the stick out of the hundred dollars and that was about the time that this antitrust act was passed both the federal and the state level and the uh, rush county attorney got wind of this little program where ej was balancing the price of the grain between the four grain buyers and uh, brought charges and that ended up him being found guilty locally and then it was filed was appealed to the Kansas Supreme Court, and it was upheld, and then it was appealed to the United States Supreme Court, and it was upheld, and E.J. ended up being incarcerated in the Rush County Jail for three months and paying a $500 fine. He was not dissuaded any at all because his wife moved out to Dodge City and lived in a hotel while he was in jail, and they operated the association out of out of the hotel room for three months. And so it went on from there, but he did have to pay a $500 fine, which he got help from the members, but that's a pretty sizable amount of money back in 1905. Yeah, if I remember correctly, that was one of the first tests of that new antitrust legislation. And it, yeah, it's amazing. He he ran the business during the day. He wasn't in jail at, during the daytime. He went to jail every every night. So it, it, it was an interesting situation. Right. He spent the night in jail and spent the day in, in uh, at the hotel, yeah. running the business. They didn't have mugshots back then. I want I want to read the jailer description of EJ from the from the Kansas Grain and Feed History book. The, they described him as 44 years old, square build with shallow complexion, protruding nose, small mouth, sharp chin, round face, and had uneven gold-filled teeth. Five foot eight inches tall and wore size 7.5 shoes. If you see a picture of this guy, that's that's about correct. I think. He looks like, yeah, he looks like Radar from MASH, I think. A little <laughs> bit. I, I, I did admire him when I read all the stuff that he did. But he, he was a small small guy, but he sure was dedicated to the industry. Oh, and his members uh, really loved him. He he served for a long time, as he said, through elections. So, But you, you were kind of 
yeah, thrown into the job after after John Craner passed away in 1980, and and thrown into the fire, so to speak. If that uh, that was the year that the Staggers Act was passed, is that correct? That is correct. Uh, if you think about it, in 1980, uh, set the stage a little bit. Jimmy Carter. It was turned out to be the last part of his administration because he was subsequently beat in November by uh, Ronald Reagan. But Jimmy Carter was a very uh, anti regulation sort of guy. He deregulated a number of industries, uh, I think oil and, and natural gas and some other things, but he deregulated, he proposed the legislation which was signed in, as you said, in the law on October 1st, 1980. And that's what I ran into in the office. And the big thing about that was that the railroads were given total freedom to set their own rates and their own level of service and all that. And and so what they did was uh, go out and work with the larger shippers and give special what they call contract rates at the time to shippers, just specialized locations. He, they would pick the locations at the expense of all the other grain elevators uh, in competition to who they selected and gave special deals on rates. And, and of course, that was one of my first challenges. I testified before Congress uh, three different times opposing contract rail rates. It just kind of over time, the industry absorbed it. We never were successful in getting it, getting the contracts rates uh, done away with, but it resulted in uh, train loaders being built uh, strategically located around the state, which as I understand is still going on as we speak. They're still building train loader elevators. The first one, as you probably know, was in Colby, Kansas, and it was built by Lincoln Grain, which was uh, part of the family of... Uh, uh, the Garvey Enterprise, and uh, that's still there, and it's, co- it's cornerstone right now. Did the grain and feed industry oppose the Staggers Act, or, or just the contract part of it? We strongly opposed it. Before, before I became uh, the chief staff officer, I was on the board, and we opposed it because we didn't feel it would allow the existence to continue as far as small country shippers. We felt like what was what would happen actually did happen, and that is the smaller operators the branch lines would be abandoned and it would become a truck operation as far as uh, a lot of the isolated locations across the state. So let's step back a little bit. Elevators are uh, in railroads, you know, had had an important relationship going back and, and people drive along Kansas, they'll see an elevator every every so many miles along a railroad. And there was a there was a pattern to that, wasn't there? Well, the pattern, as I understood, it was about 12 miles in between grain elevators and that worked out two different things uh, influenced that. One was a railroad, obviously, where they wanted them. But secondly, it's six miles is about how far you can drive a team of horses with a load of grain. And that's that's how it kind of started, the elevators uh, being located 12 miles apart. And you can still see that when you drive in western Kansas or anywhere in Kansas, basically, uh, that 12-mile difference in locations. But the elevator or the, the grain industry was greatly impacted, as you indicated earlier, by railroads, and they determined what, uh, where they actually went out and solicited people to get in the grain business so they could service them with rail cars, and uh, any entrepreneur in a local lake location where grain was being grown, if he could talk the railroad into putting a branch line there, he could build an elevator or some grain handling uh, facility there and start buying and selling grain, and that's pretty much how it started. Yeah, there's a lot of wheat history layered on that, too. Next year, 2024, we celebrate the 150th anniversary of the Mennonites bringing turkey red wheat with them to 
Gossel in South Central Kansas, and and they the rural, railroads were recruiting those farmers because they they wanted that grain business to develop. And if you look at a map, the the railroad right away they actually donated every other mile square mile on the railroad in a checkerboard pattern to farmers or or sold it for a cheap price because they they wanted to develop that grain production to have something to ship back to the east coast so that that's absolutely uh, what started our industry uh without any doubt and so you have to give credit to the rail industry for starting the grain storage industry and the grain production uh it's all went hand in hand it was very important to, uh, that they work together what were some of the reasons the the kansas grain dealers association was created in the first place well then i think there's three primary reasons the grain industry then was kind of hit and miss. They didn't work together very well. They had issues where they they actually had service by the railroad and had shipped rail cars to the Kansas City market, which, as you know, is a mill market back then. The export market was yet to be developed, but the mill market, they didn't have uh, any type of control over weights. And the shippers, uh, the grain guys, thought they were getting shorted on their uh, overall weights they delivered. And the other thing was the discounts on grain quality there was no standards to speak of and so they they got together they felt like they needed to establish grain standards and and then finally to deal with the railroad because the railroads are always a challenge uh, for our industry and so those three items was grain weights and grain standards and then railroads and i think there was an issue with grain theft too that they they took care of a lot of a lot of wheat being skimmed out of boxcars, I think. Well, there there was a challenge for the industry because the guys that invested money in facilities and bought grain from farmers, many times during harvest in particular, they had what they call scoop shovel men that would make a deal with a railroad. You drop a rail car off here and we'll buy grain from farmers and scoop it on the rail car without util- utilizing any kind of grain handling mechanics, I guess, other than just the back of the scooper. And then they would ship that rail cart and they would promise a farmer a better price than going to the local grain dealer. And you know what would happen there. I mean, typically it didn't work out that way. They were kind of shysters. So that was one of the big challenges for the grain the people that were actually in the business and had facilities of dealing with these guys. And then later on, that all proliferated into challenge on credit and different things like that, too. Yeah, one of the big challenges the industry faced in the, in the 70s was the, the Russian grain embargo, which, which was lifted in 1981 by Reagan. I, I, I imagine that made uh, the, the grain handling industry pretty happy when that happened. Yeah, I remember that quite well. We were having our convention in Wichita in April of 1981, and we were supposed to have Pat Roberts as a speaker, but because of this negotiation going on on the on the Carter's embargo with the Reagan administration then, uh, uh, he actually called and he was, I piped him through his voice through the, uh, the PA system to the whole operation. And he announced then that the uh, uh, embargo had been lifted. But what made that so important, Aaron, was just a few years prior to that, 1974, the Reagan, excuse me, uh, the Russians bought a tremendous amount of grain overnight, basically made the deal. And it had a super impact on on uh, on the price of wheat. And I, I remember it well because I was in the grain business then at the time. And I remember our price for a bushel of wheat on our board there in the office was $1.25. Wow. And uh, the, the announcement of the grain trade, or excuse me, the Russian trade, 
happened and the farmers got the drink, they were drinking coffee down at the local cafe and they said, you know, if this price shoots to the roof, there's a limit on it of $1.50. So if we don't get our $1.50, it'll go back down. So we had lines of farmers out our elevator office and it took us all day long to write checks to buy their grain at $1.50. And the next day, I mean, it, it didn't quit until they hit 365. So, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's humorous, but it's sad because that was all coffee talk and just mass yeah. mass response to it. Yeah, how, how things have changed. And now Russia's our biggest export competitor. So it, it doesn't it doesn't take a long time. I understand that from the Black Sea. One of the first things you taught me, other than how to tip a waitress, um, was the difference between uh Co-ops and independents, because this this farm kid grew up around a co-op, but of course there's cooperative grain companies and private grain companies, and, and they didn't always get along. I think that's one of the things you had to deal with when you started the job. Yeah, what happened, uh, Aaron, in, in the 70s, uh, most of the grain uh, farmers didn't sell it right off. They got a USDA uh, loan for it and uh, through the elevator, and then that grain if they didn't subsequently cash it out, it would it would become owned by the Commodity Credit Corporation and USDA. And the co-ops, through their uh, regional operations in those days, it was Farmarco, developed a, a grain buying pool called uh, Promark, and which USDA allowed co-ops to aggregate these loans. So a farmer, a number of farmers would go together and. The Promark would have used government funding basically to aggregate the loan, and they would have more power in the business to, uh, to, to trade larger volumes of grain. The independent grain elevator, uh, whether it be ADM or Cargill or whomever, or even a local, in our case, Walker Products, we had to do our own little uh, individual dealings with farmers and not have the uh, that major, uh, I guess it was, it was basically unbalanced the marketing trade where the, the regional cooperative could, could do a better deal on, on trading uh, pool grain and larger volumes. And, and so that was a huge argument. It's called Form G back in that day. And uh, actually our, our association opposed that at the chagrin of the co-ops. And when I took over in 1980, John Craner had experienced the late 70s when the cooperatives basically pulled out of the uh, Grain and Feed Association and in response to their to the association's opposition to this pool of grain operate opportunity for co-ops and so when i took over my number one challenge was to go visit co-ops and bring the members back and i was fortunate that they were willing to come back because they wanted to be members and be and all that kind of passed over so I was, i'm really pleased that that happened at that time because i was able to go visit a lot of co-ops and get them back but they they were pretty adamantly upset with with the association up to that point. What do you remember about the farm crisis of the 80s? How did, how did it impact your your businesses? Well, it, it was it was huge. The main issue was low, low prices, uh, not only able to get loans on grain and not sell it for any kind of a profit whatsoever, but then then it came paying for fertilizer. Uh, farmers had an issue. I mean, they, they, it's just tough to make a living on the farm. And our elevators suffered from accounts payable, accounts receivable, I should say. So it was it was a huge thing because there's a lot of credit losses in those days. And there's also the Wayne Kreitz thing where he broke in down in the boot hill of Missouri and got his 
got his soybeans back uh, that were on loan. Actually, I don't know if you remember that or not, but yeah, I do. That was kind of part of that whole thing, and and he he became kind of a hero. But he, in fact, he broke in and stole grain back that he had pledged for a loan. So it was definitely a criminal act. But he he became a folk hero. But it was really tough times then. It was really tough, and, and wheat ground was selling for. $300 an acre and, you know, dryland grain, I mean, dryland farming. And it was just tough. And so one of the first things I did in the early 80s was put on a credit seminar where I brought in experts to talk to our elevator operators on how to deal with credit, how to collect accounts receivable. And it was, it was difficult because grain elevators, the managers typically had a lot of sympathy for farmers going through this trouble. And it was a hard crisis to deal with. That's all, all I have to say. The association headquarters was in Dodge City, but it, it moved to Hutchinson maybe back and forth a couple of times. But I, I guess in 1987 is when it uh, moved to Topeka and what now is called the, the Tunnel Association Building. Topeka to be closer for lobbying purposes. So I think it started off in Topeka in 1896. That's where E.J. Smiley, he went to Topeka. Okay. And he was there until he retired in 1936. The person they hired to replace E.J. Smiley was a guy by the name of F.J. Moyer, who uh, was also in the grain business, and he managed a terminal operation in Dodge City, so he basically took the, the association to Dodge City and managed it there for eight years. And then when he wanted to get out of the business, they hired a guy by the name of Oris Case. Uh, this was in 1944, and just during the war, and Oris... As I recall, I talked with him uh, before he passed away. He told me that he brought a, I don't know, a few hundred dollars in, in a, a cigar box from a Dodge City to uh, Hutchison and started and reestablished the association in Hutchison and stayed in Hutchison, as you say, until I moved it in 1987. Hutchison was kind of, actually, that's where the Wheat Commission was headquartered. They, they actually moved to Manhattan first and then I moved, and the reason I moved the the office from Hutchison to uh, Topeka was obvious. I mean, we had to deal with the state legislature, and my main argument was, hey, fellas, this organization actually started in Topeka. The first 40 years was in Topeka, so of course it made sense being in Hutchison because it was such a big mecca of the grain storage industry with Farmarco being there and Garvey and, and Cargill and all the big elevators. Well, as you know, there's tons and tons of uh, upright concrete storage. It's not the largest elevator uh, in the state, but it's the longest one owned by, uh, I think it's owned by ADM now, but at that time it was Famar uh, Farmland or Famarco. Yeah, let's take a little sidestep here. You, you told me once about the, the Garvey family, how big they were at one point in time. Ray Garvey was quite an entrepreneur from Thomas County, and he bought a lot of land out there during the Depression for 50 cents an acre. And then during the uh, buildup of farmer-owned grain that became commodity credit-owned grain because of the, the loans being forfeited, uh, he, he started building elevators for two reasons. Uh, one was they were needed to store the grain. This was prior to World War, right after World War II. He built elevators. The other reason was uh, they had a real favorable tax uh, consideration for uh, building storage. USDA would not only pay for the storage, but they'd give him a, a really good tax situation IRS-wise. And so he built huge elevators in Topeka, Kansas City, Salina, Fort Worth, all over. And these are huge, huge elevators. And uh, then in 1959, he was driving to Salina to pay off the one in Salina. And 
I was in a 59 Ford, as I remember reading, and, and he had a car wreck and died. His enterprise then was combined. The total storage was recognized as the largest privately owned grain empire, grain storage empire in the world, not just the country, but the world. And then when uh, his uh, estate was divided up between his kids, there were four companies created for each one of his kids. And each one of those four companies was the largest privately owned grain operation in the world. It was Lincoln Grain, CGF, Garvey Elevators, and Garvey Grain were the four. We mentioned earlier about Colby, the first train loader was built by George Lincoln of Lincoln Grain, and he was married to a Garvey daughter. So that's quite an interesting point in history. Yeah, it really is. So, Tom, you've always kind of been in a a visionary and had imagination looking forward for what what's possible. I think one of the first steps you took on is uh, in 1983 you added the Fertilizer and Chemical Association under under your association management umbrella. How did that come to be? Well, that was an interesting uh, situation. Uh, the it was called Kansas Fertilizer and Chemical Institute at that time, but it basically just to summarize, it was an organization put together by the agronomy department at K State in order to put out information about the value of fertilizer and ag chemicals. They would go to dealers and show them, and then these guys would start selling these products, and they started their own little organization, and their first convention was actually at Kansas State, and they had fertilizer application equipment and all that out on the parking lot outside the agronomy department, and then the organization kind of grew from that. They were all volunteers and became KSCI. It's a 501c3, which in tax terms, that means it's a foundation for education and research. And so when we took it over in 19, they asked us to become, because all the people that managed the organization were all volunteers and they wanted to pay more attention to their business. So we decided, our board decided, the grain feed, that we would manage them for a, for a prize, not knowing that they were a 501c3. And of course, we were getting all geared up to represent the industry and the state legislature and do all the things that a trade association does. And then when we realized it was a C3, we reorganized it as Kansas Fertilizer and Chemical Association. And the KFCI became our found, our foundation for education and research. And so that was kind of a challenge. I, I did the old slap my head up when I said, oh my gosh, we can't do what we're doing for these guys until we reorganize and make it a 501c6 trade association. That's kind of a detail, but that was that was a challenge certainly in those days. But there was overlap there. I mean, a lot of grain elevator companies had the agronomic fertilizer and chemical side of, of the business too, so it just it just made sense. Absolutely, Aaron, you're, you're, you're so correct. They, uh, it was part of the business uh, to handle grain and also sell fertilizer and chemical. There was very few standalone uh, businesses at that time only did that, but there were some. And as I recall, uh, maybe now, but at that time, there were 740 locations across the state that sold fertilizer and chemicals. So it was, a, it was a sizable industry. And we had the same challenges in terms of dealing with government, in terms of credit challenge, uh, crisis. All, all those things were very common. As you say, in many cases, the same business owned them. The um, trade show business kind of exploded in the 80s and in the 90s, and you created the Kansas Agribusiness Expo in 1986, which became, I think, the largest trade show of, it, of its kind in, in America and, and has had a has a long run. That was quite the undertaking back then, wasn't it? Well, it was a challenge because in, in those days, uh, Grain and Feed had its own convention at, at Sensory 2, 
at that time in 83 when we took over the fertilizer and chemical industry in April. And then the fertilizer and chemical industry, like I said, it was volunteer managed. They did theirs in December and century two. And, but we, because of the size of each one, we couldn't put them together because it would take more space than was available in terms of exhibition space. And then they built, uh, I think it was 80, well, 86, we put it together because we could use, uh, they built an expo hall there at Century 2, which was 95,000 square feet of area you could use for trade show. And, and that, I think that's where they still have the, the expo and, and it's conjunction with the Hyatt Regency Hotel there in Wichita. And, but beginning at KFCI did their trade show in the bottom of the Broadview Hotel. And they actually did it in Topeka a few times too. One of the uh, biggest accomplishments that the Grain and Feed had, I, I believe in my opinion, in, in the 90s was the privatization of the Kansas Grain Inspection Service. What, what made the association go down that road to, to privatize that agency? That was that was a super challenge. Uh, what really was a feather or what tipped the decision to go ahead and try to privatize? Grain Inspection was a state agency, and it, it charged fees for its services, and all the fees were paid by the industry, the grain storage and handling industry. But then all the money, any surplus, would be uh, kept in, in the state reserves. And I remember... At that time, they had eight inspection locations around the state, and they needed new protein analyzing machines, and they needed one per location, which was eight. And then they needed the, the ninth one as the backup in the event one would go down. So I, I brought the need to the state legislature, to the House Ag Committee, and I said, guys, we need this budget approved because we need to buy nine protein analyzers. And some smart legislator said that we, we need to save money on this, and we can give you four. And I said, that won't work because we've got eight locations that do protein uh, tests. And so that kind of brought home that we needed to be more in control. So we lobbied and the stars really aligned, Aaron, back then. We had Dan Glickman was the USDA secretary. Uh, The grain inspection is oversighted by USDA, so they had to agree to it. We had Bill Graves as governor. I'm trying to think the secretary of the state secretary of ag. But all three were very... uh, let's just say privatization-minded and, and like the idea, we, the association, had to commit to hiring all the state employees, pay them the same amount of money, offer the same fringe benefits. And so I remember going to the bank as a, the exec of the Grain and Feed Association and signing a $750,000 nut, uh, note so we could borrow uh, the money to buy, I think, 20-some pickups and rent the locations and hire the people and it was quite a challenge, but now it's, now it's really worked out fine because the industry, the organization now is still separate from grain and feed. It's just owned by them, but they're responsive to the industry's needs. And so if we need nine protein machines, we can get them. We don't have to go through a state legislature to get it done. Yeah, I, I, that was an impressive change. I think in some ways it led to the privatization of our organizations, the Kansas Commodity Boards, all, all privatized in 2000 from the state. And it's proven to be a very, very smart move too. Well, Tom, you, you saw a lot change in, in your time in the industry. Uh, mergers was one of those. I mean, we, we went from, I, I don't know, 500 separate companies to 200 separate companies when in my tenure at the Kansas Grain and Feed. What are, what are some of the bigger monumental changes that you saw during 
your term at, at KGFA. Well, I think, Aaron, it's still, it's still going on, as you said. And, and I, I remember it was 125 cooperatives at the time. And now I think we're down to, what, 20-some or 30-some uh, cooperatives merging. And, and that prediction was made by someone at one of our meetings. And I remember the cooperative managers walking out, scratching their heads, saying, how can this happen? How can we go from 125 down to whatever the prediction was? But in fact, we've got that. We've had that happen. But the other thing is the independent side or the major international companies, uh, Archer Daniel Midland, Cargill, they've actually become partners with some of the larger co-ops. And these train loaders uh, are taken out in Garden City. Well, there's just a number. I, actually, Cornerstone and Colby is another jointly held operation owned by ADM and, and the local co-ops. But the merging, uh, I, I would say the major benefit's been the farmer because he has tremendous services available. I mean, you've got the largest store. You never have to worry about running out of fertilizer or having service there available to you because of the size of the grain operation or the, the overall agribusiness operation. So I, we did see it. We, I, I do think railroad deregulation caused a lot of that to happen uh, just because of the cost of loading grain or dealing with this or that in terms of the government response or regulatory challenges. It just required bigger operations. And now we've got the schoolers out there. We've got Bartlett, a lot of other privately held companies that are there to serve the farmers. So it's not all bad. And actually, I, th I think some of that helped proliferate the uh, ethanol processing business too. Some of the same players are active in that, as you know. Which is an association you also started, the Ethanol Processors Association for Kansas, and just another one of, of many groups you, uh, you, you took on. As, as those grain companies became bigger and bigger, Tom, and they became more independent and self-sufficient, how, how did you keep them involved with the Kansas Grain and Feed Association? How did you keep them on, on board? Well, it's, it's an interesting challenge, or it was an interesting challenge. My predecessor, Ron Sieber, has the same thing, challenge to deal with, but I realized then that you had to make sure you had either the CEO or one of the main officers of the company on your board. They would be so willing to offer their merchandiser or some of the, the head guy in charge of fertilizer, somebody that actually couldn't make decisions for the company. And I was pretty emphatic and really asked that they have someone on our board of directors that could speak for the company. And I really think that's what helped us grow and basically persevere uh, the challenges that we've had to challenge. And the other, the other thing was the Fertilizer and Chemical Association and the Grain and Feed Association, so many other states said, well, what do we got one staff and two organizations? Why not, why not we uh, put it together and call it the Nebraska Agribusiness Association or whatever? And uh, I, I oppose that because clearly people in the fertilizer and chemical business had a different mindset on how to conduct business than grain guys. They were just so different. Fertilizer and chemical guys were really good business people, but they were also salespeople. And they just had a different way of, of dealing with farmers. And, and grain guys were more close to the vest guys, and they, they just had a different attitude. So I opposed making an agribusiness association out of two as well. But the main thing was to keep the, the decision makers involved in your business and to try to make sure they understood. They actually had a say in which direction the association was headed. And I think that's what helped us still be here. 
Well, Tom, we could we could talk a lot about a lot of other things, but uh, that that's a great background and uh, reason I wanted to visit with you today. And and I owe you a lot. I think one of your greatest accomplishments was all the young people you've taken over under your wings over the years and 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 trained them to go on to successful careers. And I, I thank you for that. And uh, thank you for your time joining us on the podcast. Well, as with you, Aaron, I still I still talk to most of them. I've got. One of our, our, our guys, our staff guys, is now the head lobbyist for uh, bear crop uh, protection in Washington, D.C. We've got the head of the Kansas Bankers Association. And look around, we've got one of the major ag lobbyists in, in Washington, D.C., and Mike Torrey, his former, actually, you replaced him, I think. But uh, I want to thank you for when you came to the association with your creative ideas, too. You actually designed our, our logos and help get us uh, up, up to snuff on such things as email and stuff like that. I thank God for you. You're showing up too. <laughs> yeah. The new kid out of college, get us on the internet. That's, that's all. That's what I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Those were the days. Uh, dial up one person at a time. Yeah. Things have changed a little bit. So absolutely. Tom, um, I hope you're enjoying retirement in Florida. I know you come to Manhattan every once in a while. I look forward to seeing you. By, by the way, I'll be there for Saturday's game. All right. Well, hope bring some luck with you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, man. My special thanks to Tom Tunnel for joining us on this episode of the Weeds on Your Mind podcast. Remember, if you have questions for any of our guests or ideas for future podcasts, please email us at podcast at ksweet.com. I'm Aaron Harries. Thanks for listening. <music>